As you can see, if you took a bulletin when you came in, this morning we're looking at John chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't, of course, it will be on the screen behind me. This is such an interesting passage. Um, (laughs) I'm delighted by it. I hope you can tell that. It kind of comes in an almost surprising fashion. And I'm going to explain to you why it's so surprising. Um, you know, many of you know that I was on vacation last week. And I have to tell you that being in southwest Florida, where it was always between 82 and 89, sunny every day, sitting on the beach under an umbrella, reading a book, it wasn't bad. And somebody texted me while I was there and asked, well, how are the divorce doing? You know, kind of concerning to come back. And what I said was, Well, of course, because when you find a place where you can belong, a good church, you just want to keep going back. And so you're not in southwest Florida this morning, that's true, but in my humble estimation, I'm in a better place because you're all here. And I'm excited to share this Word of God with you this morning because I believe that this is exactly what God, who knows you better than anyone else can, has for you. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 16, just a few verses. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of God. One of the delights of vacation for me is reading books I wouldn't ordinarily read. And one of the wonderful things I discovered in the condo we were staying was a book called We Die Alone. And it wasn't totally unknown to me. I'd read this book about 10 years ago, but I was glad to reread it because I'd forgotten a lot of the detail. It is a story of four Norwegian commandos in March of 1943 who travel from the northernest parts of Great Britain to try to stir up rebellion among the Norwegians. And they travel over a thousand miles in a small fishing boat, four commandos, and as they're about to land, as they're about to land in Norway, somehow the Nazis discover that they are there. They start shooting at the boats, and all but one of the commandos is either killed or captured. And his name was Jan Balsrud. And the rest of the book is a fascinating account, almost unbelievable, about how this man stays alive and eventually makes his way to freedom. But now let me explain to you a particular part of that story that I think you can sympathize with. At a certain point, Jan Balsrud is trying to connect with the underground movements 
in Norway to try to make his way to freedom. And he had been told that a certain certain shopkeeper was a safe person to go to and disclose that he needed help. So he goes to the shopkeeper and he talks to the shopkeeper and he discovers of all horrible things that the shopkeeper he thought he was talking to had actually died last year. And of all the crazy things, the new shopkeeper had exactly the same name. And John, by this time, had laid out his predicament, and the shopkeeper is faced with a terrible choice. How does the shopkeeper know that John is actually a fellow Norwegian trying to help? Or is John a Nazi spy sent to discover who is sympathetic to their overthrow? And the book describes a night in which the shopkeeper mulls it over and over and over. What should I do? Should I turn him in? Should I not turn him in? And in the morning, the shopkeeper calls the local Nazi installment soldiers and tells them that John has come. Now the reason I find that so fascinating is because the book discloses the reason why the shopkeeper calls the Nazis is because he's afraid. And as I was reading that, sitting on a beach in southwest Florida, 85 degrees, you might say that fear was the furthest thing from my mind, but when I read that account, I thought, no, it's not really. I understand that fear. If not that magnitude or that situation, the power of fear. In fact, I would tell you this morning that one of the most powerful motivators that exists in our world is the power of fear. It can move you to do things that ordinary you would never consider doing, like this shopkeeper turning in John Ballsrood. Well, I can just ask you at the beginning of the sermon this morning, how much does fear motivate you? Because that's the question that is going to be asked in our six or so verses from John chapter 6. And Jesus gives a powerful answer to that question of fear. And this morning I want to explain to you that Jesus has an antidote to that fear. Here it is. Do you want to hear it? It's this simple. Jesus is greater than the fear. Jesus is greater than the fear. In fact, what he's going to say to his disciples is that Jesus has far more power than they could even imagine. Or let me put it in terms for you. Jesus has more power even than you imagine. And because he has more power than you imagine, there is no reason to fear. And I want to explain that to you this morning. Just two ideas. It's going to be simple for, excuse me, for you children who are taking notes because it's just two words. The first word to write down is the storm. The second is the Savior. Storm and Savior. And I want to begin with the storm. We didn't read the previous section here in John chapter 6. That was last week, Sunday morning. But I'll just give you a quick review because some of you probably were not here. At the beginning of John chapter 6, All these people are coming out to listen to Jesus preach, and they come up with a predicament. It's time to eat, and there's no food. The disciples come to Jesus, and they say, there's no food. It's not possible to feed all these people. There are 5,000 people to feed. Who in the world can supply all that food? And Jesus does an amazing miracle. He has a few loaves of bread, a few fishes, and he 
increases exponentially that food and everyone eats. Now that's amazing. I hope when you heard that last Sunday you went, wow, that's incredible. Because the people in the story certainly had that response. They're like, this is incredible. In fact, I want to show you how incredible they believed it to be. Look at the end of the last section. Verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to take him, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why did Jesus go to the mountain and leave his disciples alone? Because the people were so impressed, they wanted to take him against his own will and make him king. Now think about the utilitarian purpose for their desire. They were in a country in which they were dominated by the Romans. They said, here's a man who can take a few loaves and some fish, multiply it, feed all these 5,000. This is a man who needs a platform. This is a man who needs to be promoted. He's a wandering rabbi preaching out here in the mountains. This isn't the best use for Jesus. Jesus needs to be in a spot where he can do some real good. Let's make him king, and he can give us the freedom that we really need. Well, that introduces us to the storm that comes in verses 16 through 21. Here are these disciples. They get into a boat. They're going to cross the sea. And as they are three or four miles across the sea, there is a storm that arises. Now, if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, you know that these storms arise. An east wind comes over the mountains, settles down into the lower area where the Sea of Galilee is, and it stirs up the water. It's almost like the mountains sort of channel the force of the wind. And where there wasn't a storm, all of a sudden there's a great storm. And that's what the disciples were experiencing. If you have an artist in your family, someone who appreciates art, you will know there's a famous painting by Rembrandt called, appropriately, Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. How creative is that? And when you look at that portrayal, you'll notice a few historical inaccuracies. Looks almost like these sailors lived when Rembrandt did. But what was really fascinating about the picture, the painting, is you can see the fear on the faces of the mariners. You can see they're struggling. The boat is kind of lifted up. The waves are pushing against it, almost flipping the boat over. They're struggling to pull in the sail, and their faces are overcome by fear. That's part of why Rembrandt was so great. The ability to capture the emotion, the drama of the scene. They're struggling to maintain control of the ship as the wind and the slaves slam against the boat. And it is not wrong for you this morning to think that's what they were experiencing, a great deal of fear. And it was fear not only of the situation, But the Israelites had a built-in fear of the sea. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, talking about the creation of the world, it says, 
And there over the face of the waters, the earth without form and void, there was darkness over the face of the deep waters. That is where God brought the creation from. In other words, he created it out of nothing, but as he fashions the creation, there is a sense of unorderliness. There is a sense that creation needs to be brought together And the way that it's described is like a sea that is roaring, and God brings that together in a way that reflects the beauty of creation. And that motif is found often in the Old Testament. In the book of Job, for example, it talks about the power of the Creator God by describing Him as walking over the surface of a sea that is disturbed. Now here is where I can ask you the question you've already been considering. Whether you've ever been in a scary situation like this. My siblings will laugh because the scariest situation I had as a child was being at a parade in a small town and a clown came over and wanted to give me candy. I'd watched, some of you will appreciate this, I'd watched Little House on the Prairie previously and i don't know if you've watched this but there is one episode in which a clown does really horrific things to children in little house on the prairie strange i had viewed that at home and now in this parade up comes a clown and i ran and i hid myself behind a house and my parents came like what are you so afraid of that fear was palatable even to this day i can feel that fear I'm sure there are similar fears that are known to you. Maybe it's a fear of the unknown. Don't know what the future looks like. It's a fear that your job is going to end. It's a fear of what's happening in your family. Maybe it's a fear of what's happening in your own soul. There are all sorts of fears that you might face. A little later on, when I was a young teenager, I was visiting my uncle and aunt, in a small town, and there's a tornado that came through that town. I remember sitting in the basement, hearing the sirens roar, and the tornado clipped the southern part of town. And the amount of fear I saw, even in my uncle and aunt, it was amazing. Obviously, it was a power beyond their ability to control. These are frightening things, horrible things, amazingly powerful things. And I understand if you would fear them or other things like them in your life. But if you're not reading the story carefully, you might assume that's why the disciples are afraid. But it's not. The disciples are not afraid because there's a tornado or there is a storm on the sea. No, when you look at this chapter, verse 19, it describes why they were afraid. It says they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I'm not suggesting this morning the storm wasn't a problem. It certainly was. But John is careful to say that wasn't the reason for their fear. They looked over the storm, over the sea, and what did they see? It was Jesus walking on the surface of the water coming toward them. 
Now I get floating above the water. (laughs) I floated in the ocean last week, and it was great. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not floating in the water. He is walking above the surface of a storm. This is Jesus demonstrating that not even a storm has power over him. Let me just run a little thought experiment with you as you consider these verses. Compare the multiplication of the bread and the fish with this event. In the previous section, everyone was impressed by turning a little bit into a lot. That impressed them enough they wanted to make him king. Throw off those Romans. Make Jesus king. But in comparison with that story, what we find in these verses is a substantial elevation. Because this is not Jesus making a little into a lot. This is Jesus proclaiming that he is nothing less than the God of the universe. Back in Genesis 1, when it talks about the world being without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep waters, it is God, it says, who was above them. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of those waters. And in Job 9, verse 8, that I already alluded to, when Job was in his deepest angst, he says, God alone treads on the waves of the sea. Here is Jesus treading about the ways of the sea. And what brought fear into the hearts of the disciples was it not occasioned by the storm. It was not the cause of their fear alone. The cause of their fear was the realization that Jesus had the power of God himself. This is God. That's what his walking proclaimed. Or if I could put the message of this passage compared with the previous In the previous passage, Jesus exhibited a power they knew what to do with. (laughs) Make him king. Now Jesus is exhibiting a power that is way beyond what they could believe. It is not just that they want to make him king. What they see is that Jesus is king. Not just over some bread and some fish. Over the winds and the waves. Over all creation. He doesn't want to be king over just a strip of land in the Middle East. He wants to be king over every single thing. Even the winds and the waves, all creation are under his control. It's like asking you this question. Have you ever been in the presence of someone great and not realized it until he was right there? There's this funny story about Keanu Reeves, the actor. He went to one of the openings for one of his films, and he came on a bus, and he stood by the front door, and the doorman wouldn't let him in. And it wasn't until the showing began, and everybody asked, well, where's Kiana? And somebody went out to the front, and the doorman is preventing him from coming in. Can you imagine the moment at which that doorman thinks to himself, oh, no, I'm keeping the main attraction from coming in. There's a moment of realization, a flip. There's a sense that I'm in the presence of someone great and I didn't realize it. That is only a minor example of what the disciples experience in this passage. 
They are in the presence of Almighty God. And they are afraid. Which makes the words of Jesus in response to them the perfect thing for them and for us. Beyond the storm, there is the Savior. Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. I said that very calmly. As you can tell, my voice is not strong this morning. I want to say it more like this. It is I, fear not. Because I'm confident that is the tone. In fact, if I can be a little critical of our translation here, it is not Jesus just identifying himself. It is not just, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. Jesus is literally saying, I am. Do not fear. Now, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but let me explain to you how significant that is. These I am statements show up all over the book of John. Already in chapter 4, verse 26, a number of chapters before, the woman at the well says she is looking for the Messiah who is to come. Hey, when's the Messiah going to come? And Jesus turns to her and says, I am. Could you imagine that moment? Later on in this chapter, in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. And in various other places in the Gospel of John, this I am formula is used. It is used for this important reason. In the Old Testament, when God Almighty meant to speak to his people to reveal to them who he is, what he says to them is, I am. Which is a different way of saying that I am God. I'm the self-existent one. I don't rely on anyone else. I alone am God. There's no one beside me. I have no comparison with any other. I need no affirmation. I need no support. I am the self-existent one. I am God. So that every time Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the Old Testament aware people think to themselves, this is a man, this is Jesus claiming to be the God of our fathers, Almighty God come in the flesh. And as amazing as that is, Jesus claiming to be Almighty God coming in the flesh, that's not the really surprising thing yet. <laughs> and that's why I'm so delighted by this passage to see God Almighty walking on the waves of the sea to them is not the surprising thing. It causes fear, but it is not the surprising thing. The surprising thing is that Jesus adds what is just two words, do not fear. That's the good news. To imagine that the God of the universe is walking across the waves to his disciples. That's amazing. It's mind-blowing. But it's also intimidating. Because the God of the universe is walking across the waves to see his disciples. If the power they observed in the last, pa last passage is truly impressive, here it is intimidating. And the more people come to see who Jesus is, the more Jesus needs to reassure them, do not fear, I'm with you. No need to fear. In fact, that's 
That phrase, do not fear, comes up over and over and over in the Gospels until the last thing that Matthew records Jesus saying to his disciples before he ascends is, there's no reason to fear. I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Because the presence of God often brings great fear into our lives. If that's a little difficult for you to understand, I have to give you a formula. I'm going to reduce it to a formula, then I'm going to explain it. Here's the formula why you might fear God. He has all power. That's the first thing. This is not your next door neighbor who sees you through the window in your bathrobe in the morning. That's embarrassing. That's not God. God sees you at every moment, and he has awesome power. He is the power of the universe. There's no one like him. The second thing the Bible says about this God is he is absolutely holy. Just review your morning. Maybe you want to review your car ride here. Did you have a little snippeting snippeting time with your husband or your wife? (laughs) Did one of your children criticize one of their siblings? Did you reserve in your heart, as we talked about in the fourth commandment, the sense, why am I coming to church? It's kind of boring. I don't know. Do we really need to go? Look at it. It's going to be 50 today. Don't actually look. And then it's going to be a wintry mix tonight. Was there a little part of you that thought, man, 50 degrees, that's my cutoff point for riding my motorcycle. I could be out going down the roads. Oh, my word. Think of the deeper sins that exist in your life. Your covetousness, your anger, your frustration, your greed, your lust. If the first great truth is God is God over all, he's all-powerful. The second great truth of the Bible is absolutely, unwaveringly holy. There's no one like him. He doesn't wink at sin, not even once. And he's not your grandpa who says, well, it's not that big a deal. God has an absolute standard. The third part of the formula beyond his power and his holiness is this. You're a sinner. (laughs) I mean, it's an ugly truth, but I've got to tell you the truth. All those things that I named about your sin, they're true and a whole bunch of others. I mean, be honest. John says in his epistle, we should be honest about our sin. Don't pretend like God doesn't see it. Obviously, he sees your sin. He knows it. And because you know his power, you're amazed at his power, you're amazed at your holiness, you can even say you're amazed at your sin, therefore, one plus two plus three, well, one, then two, then three, I'm not going to add them, leads to four, and the fourth is this, we're afraid, we fear, because this God knows everything, and I'm standing before his face. Sunday mornings, you have this great thing called the boiler room. It goes back to Spurgeon many years ago. People get together in my office and we pray for the service. The thing that I really thought about this morning was impresses God with the greatness of who you are. That we would also understand the reason why Jesus is so necessary. Because in this story, that four-step formula that I told you is fundamentally changed. 
You should be amazed at God's power. It's worth standing in amazement at. I mean, over this past winter, I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I still can't say that without becoming emotional. It is so impressive. And last week at this time, I was looking out over the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, nothing's more impressive than looking at water that goes on forever. God is a God of power. You should be amazed that God is a God of holiness. He is. You should be amazed at your own sin. It's impressive how much it clings to your soul. But then to that one, two, and three, there's a new four in this passage. And here's what I want you to hear. You should know the Jesus of power and holiness takes your sin upon himself. And therefore, you do not need to fear. If I can just put it in general terms like this, I'm afraid to tell you, and I hope this does come as a surprise to you. Maybe not, but I'll say it anyway. Often the church, at least certain churches, specialize in fear. That is, we talk a lot about the commandments of God, the rules of God, because we want people to get in line. The commandments are read not to lead us to the grace of Christ, but to point out to you, you're a miserable person, (laughs) which means you need a lot of help. Keep coming back! But that is not what the gospel leads us to. We are called to follow after our God, but not out of fear. It's out of love. When I open this sermon by saying one of the greatest motivations that exists in life is fear, I was telling you the truth. But I've got to tell you one more thing. The greatest motivation, greater than fear, is love. So that when you read this passage, what I want you to hear in the words of Jesus where he says to his disciples, it's me, I am. Do not fear is more than a proclamation of sterile theological truth. It is the whisper of love. Saying to his disciples as well as you this morning, there is no reason to fear because of the God of the universe has come to you in Jesus Christ and he has come to care for you. And whatever the storm of life is, whether it is literally the storm the disciples are experiencing, all those other examples of storm that I raised, it could be the deepest kind of storm anyone has ever known, that storm pales in comparison with the awesomeness of God Himself. And in Jesus Christ, the greatness of that God comes to you in love to say there is no reason to fear. And that's the good news that comes to you this morning. Amen. Father, you've been at work here this morning. We're thankful for that. We're even more thankful. There's no reason to bow our heads in shame and in guilt. Because if we're believers in Jesus Christ, what causes that guilt and that shame are taken away by our Savior. And we look forward in weeks that follow to hear more about who Jesus is. As he repeats even next week, I'm the bread of life. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. Lord, all of those things are meant to reassure us that there is no reason to fear. 
It is Jesus drawing His disciples and us to Himself. And I would pray for each person who hears this word, whether they're here this morning with us in this room or they're joining us over the internet, that Your Spirit would do a mighty work, that He would glorify Jesus Christ, for it is in His name we pray. Amen.